Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Let us begin with the sailors on the whale ship Swan, trapped in the ice on the west coast of Greenland in the new year of 1837. It's now nearly five months since they became trapped, and time is running out. The environment is terrifying and scurvy is starting to get a grip from which few could escape. The readings are taken from the logbook of the Swan, held in the archives of the Caird Library at the National Maritime Museum in London. A transcription has been made especially for this podcast. You are the first people ever to hear this story read out. Monday 20th of March. Four part of this day commences with fine clear weather and little wind, the ship having drifted nothing north during the last breezes. At 8am strong gales, the ship driving fast in a northwesterly direction. At 4pm passed by a berg aground, against which the ice was tearing up with such force that it resembled a sea breaking over a cliff. The day ends with heavy gales and thick snowy weather, the thermometer reading 25 degrees above zero. Friday 24th of March. Light winds with fine clear weather, the ship being quite stationary. During the last southerly gales, the ship has drifted 45 miles to the northwards, and we are once more among an immense number of icebergs from which there is no chance of being liberated until the most northerly gale. The north end of Hare Island bears about south-southeast distant 25 miles. A 250-gallon cask number 17 cut up for fuel this day. Latitude by observation 70 degrees by 34 north. Thermometer 5 degrees. Monday 27th. Fine clear weather with light northerly winds, Hare Island bearing south by east distant 15 miles. There is very little hope now of our being enabled to stop on board until the ice breaks up, our bread being nearly expended and several of them down in the scurvy. Though the land is no great distance from us, still the chance of getting the ship out is very small, being frozen up in the very centre of a large floe. Should an opportunity offer or a good lead present itself, it would be impossible to attempt to soar through the ice, the health of our men being so much injured by exposure to cold and the want of a sufficient quantity of nourishment. Two shakes cut up this day for fuel. 
do remember when listening to this that the reason we are including this log, it's not just for entertainment, it's because those sailors were stuck in the ice. And in that area of Greenland where they became stuck, the ice now arrives later and it leaves much earlier. Because of global warming, the experience that you listen to at the start of each of our episodes will, quite simply, never be repeated. Today we are heading all the way to Sydney to speak with Kevin Sumption, the Director and CEO of the Australian National Maritime Museum. And he came there after a stint in London at the National Maritime Museum there and the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, where he was Director of Exhibitions and Programmes. He's an expert on too many things to mention, but they include digital media in cultural institutions, digital curatorship, interactive media, basically anything and everything to do with museum management, exhibition curation, programme development, maritime heritage and digital cultural content. As part of this podcast, I've wanted to find out about how certain maritime myths are understood and experienced around the world. And one of those myths, one that encapsulates themes of discovery and empire, is Captain Cook. And there is no one better placed than Kevin at the Australian National Maritime Museum to discuss the unique challenges of how to remember Cook. I loved speaking to him. I found it inspirational and refreshing, and I hope you enjoy listening. You'll never think about Cook the same way ever again, that's for certain. Hi Kevin, thanks for speaking to us today. Pleasure, Sam. So Australia, it's such a vast country. You've got this um, very distinctive mixture of urban and rural, of maritime and not maritime. Tell me how you actually cope with that challenge as a museum. Well, it's, it's an interesting mix, as you say, but one of the things that we do have in Australia is uh, an enormous coastline, about 26,000 kilometres of coastline, and over 80% of the population lives within about 20 k's of that coastline. So uh, whether, whether you like it or not, you're, you're kind of connected to the ocean. The vast majority of the population is anyway. Um, and... Most people engage in some form of leisure or sport associated with, with our oceans or our inland rivers. So it kind of is in the blood. It's very close, literally, to where people are living. So we find it quite easy to connect with people, um, so long as you are also willing to take a contemporary view of the oceans and ocean sciences, as well as the historical. So one of the things that... Um, I think sets us apart as a maritime museum is that we are as much focused on today and the future as we are on the historical aspects of Australia's maritime history. It's such a, a, a great way to do it. I'm a firm believer on that. I think it helps you tell the story much more easily if you can use the contemporary, use the modern day as a starting place. Um, and what about the breadth of your collections? How, how does that help you tell this story of rivers and the sea and, and the Australian's connection with, with the maritime world? So, so we're a relatively new uh, national collecting institution. So our collecting started in the mid-1980s. And it's fair to say that most of the major museums are state museums in Australia. And they started 100 years ahead of us collecting and, and mainly in the natural histories area, uh, uh, some in the design area, 
Um, so we came late to uh, the collecting, but in this period between the mid-80s through to 2020, we've amassed a collection, just over 144,000 objects. Arguably the most significant parts of that collection, though, are our floating fleets. So mm. we have a fleet of 11 vessels. That 11? Can... I didn't know there was that many. That's yes, astonishing. Yes, yes. And, and about to add another significant replica, um, the Dyfkin, uh, which is a replica of the first European vessel to have a documented encounter with the continent and with Indigenous Australians off Cape York in 1606. That's about to come into our collection as well, and we'll operate that on Sydney Harbour. Yeah, we'll just to say that's that's 164 years before Cook arrived. And we'll come. I think we'll come back to that fairly significant point. I think. Um, just briefly, tell us about these other historic vessels. I know about the Endeavour, uh, which is a replica of Cook's ship built in in eighty eight in, in the mid eighties, and then um, that, that you know has become famous around the world. It's circumnavigated Australia three times. It's been to Europe. It's been to the States. It's been all over the place. Um, we'll talk about that briefly. But, but what about these other historic vessels you have? So, so most of our other operating vessels are relatively small um, vessels. So we have what we call a cuda boat. And a cuda boat is a shark fishing boat that was built in the 1870s in Victoria uh, as a means of uh, using relatively straightforward uh, technology to, to catch fish um, out of um, Melbourne. Uh, then we have a gift from the New Zealand uh, government for the Bicentenary of Australia, uh, which is the Akarana, which is a very prominent racing vessel, won many races on Sydney Harbour, again in the 19th century. We also have another bicentennial gift from the Norwegian government, which is the Kathleen Gillette, which is a, a beautiful boat originally built for the use of one of Australia's most prominent maritime artists, Jack Earl, and that was restored and gifted to uh, the nation. Uh, then we have a range of work boats. One of my favorites is the John Louis. The John Louis is a purling lugger uh, built in the 1950s, the last purling lugger actually built in Broome on our west coast. Um, with a fantastic history of Broome and particularly uh, Japanese, Indonesian, Malaysian divers and crew. Um, a whole range of stories can be told through Australia's pearling industry. Uh, and then a range of other small work boats that we take out from time to time onto the harbour. Uh, and then included on top of all of that are the two largest objects in the national collections in Australia, which is uh, uh, an Oberon-class submarine called Onslow and a uh, destroyer, um, HMAS Vampire. Uh, both of those aren't operational anymore, you'll be happy to hear, um, <laughs> but they're two of the collection, which is all situated in beautiful Sydney Harbour, which is we're told by our visitors, is really what drives them to come and see us. They've got so many opportunities to go on board and 
kind of live the experience of being a sailor or someone operating on these vessels. It's what we call a living history approach. And, and that's yeah. something the museum prizes itself on. It's so, it's so fantastic. That breadth of collection. I've never heard anything like it. Um, we're actually going to be doing a strand on the podcast on historic vessels. Uh, and we've also got some funding from Lloyd's Register Foundation to travel. So I'm going to make sure I come to Sydney and look at your beautiful ships. That's the plan. Um, it must be a wonderful experience being able to go on to Cook's Endeavour and then go on to a submarine. Um, quite bewildering for visitors as well. I think there's always a real sense that, you know, the maritime world, the world of the sailor is is just there's one interpretation, one understanding of it. And it, all you've got to do is go on to a submarine and then go on to Cook's Endeavour and you're realize how wildly different it all is yeah look I, I, undoubtedly sam that and one of the challenges we have is is trying to give people a sense of the diversity of, of the sailing experience that be you an officer or a sailor on a royal australian navy vessel or a fisherman in the middle of the turbulent seas off of melbourne in the mid 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 19th century uh, or out in sydney harbour on a flying 18 flying um 18 trying to win a trophy uh, all very different experiences, um, but, you know, fascinating and exciting. And our job really is to bring those objects to life. And so sailing them or our, our other prize vessel I didn't mention, which I should do, is Steam Yacht Ina, which is an Edwardian launch that uh, we've spent three years working on restoring uh, that now goes out and about the harbour and is, again, another way to experience uh, the high life, so to speak, of the Edwardian era on a beautiful steam launch. Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting you say that, because I love the, the democratic, I suppose, nature of these vessels. So if you go on board and you say, well, I can imagine myself as a crew, but there's a chance that I could become a captain. Or if you go on as a, you know, as, as a visitor, or we, we, I'd, I'd like to be able to be wealthy enough, I don't know, to enjoy this Edwardian steam launch. But I think just going on a boat... It really puts life into a kind of bubble and makes you realise the opportunities ahead of you. It's such a powerful teaching tool. I look and 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 what I'm always struck by is that opportunity is not as common as we'd like to think. Not not everybody gets a chance to go out on the water, go sailing, or experience being on a steam yacht. So it, it's 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 a really special experience. And I, I had a good friend of mine who I've lived next door to for about ten years. And we took him out in Steam Yacht Ina uh, last weekend. And he came up to me and said, that was one of the great experiences of my life. I got to see this <laughs> steam yacht. I could smell this thing working. I could feel it moving beneath me. This was one of the great kind of experiences he'd, he'd ever had. And, and this was somebody who'd you know, done quite a bit of sailing and been on a lot of vessels around the world. But being on a steam boat... And going back it's somewhat in time to experience what that was like was incredibly special. Yeah, a very profound experience. It's very visceral, the smell particularly. I've, I've had a, a lucky chance to be on a couple of historic vessels like that. And I completely agree with him. It's, um, it's something that if you haven't experienced, you really have to. It's, uh, it, it's quite moving, isn't it? I think it is. We, we live in a world where so much of the function of the machines we surround ourselves with is, is hidden. It's either in a microchip or, or it's electronic or it's digital or the, the function of the machine is not particularly evident. It's certainly not touchable and it very rarely has a smell 
or a texture. And this is the beauty of sailing or steaming, is if you're looking at a, a turbine prop or if you're looking at a steam engine, the function of what it's delivering, the propulsion is pretty evident from the mechanics in front of you. The steam, the smell, the temperature, all of these things really excite the senses in a way that a lot of contemporary technology quite deliberately hides behind. So a completely different kind of visceral experience, as you say. It helps you understand the word inventor as well, because you're standing there and there's there's some water which is being heated. It's really quite simple technology, but that is making this machine come alive in front of your eyes. That's what I love about it. The, again, the sense that um, these wonderful inventions of the 19th century were, were almost there for anyone to just sort of pick up if they had the genius to make it happen. It makes that, that whole process very human, I think. It does. And, and again, with having moving back through time and having also sailing vessels, I think our ability to look at two to 300 years of technological change in sailing through our fleet now is, is also quite surprising to people. They, they, they tend to think, oh, you know, I've seen a modern yacht that sails in a certain way, it's rigged in a certain way, that's all straightforward. They, they don't realize that the technology that's involved in simply sailing is hundreds, if not thousands of years in evolution. And there are distinct styles and approaches, including Cook's own endeavor, which is incredibly different from, let's say, a Dutch East Indies yacht like Dyfken. Very different setup, very different approach to sailing. Um, and that, again, is the beauty of having a collection like ours that can literally take you through different technological approaches to either steaming or sailing. Yeah, um, it, it's great. You've come back to Dyfkin, um, this Dutch yacht, uh, first documented discovery of Australia in or discovery um, contact with Europeans of Australia in 1606, and Captain Cook, because that's primarily what I wanted to talk to you, to you about today: uh, the arrival of Cook in 1770. Um, and just by mentioning the Dyfkin there, you can see that it's it, there's a there's a pretty complex layered history there. What are the what are the the challenges of r remembering? Uh, Captain Cook's arrival in 1770? I, I think that the challenges of, of, of remembering Cook's arrival off the east coast of Australia are, are, are many and varied. I think fundamentally um, we have approached this important anniversary, uh, first of all, reminding people that Cook was uh, engaged in a scientific endeavour. He was part of a scientific um, endeavour into the Pacific, primarily around observing the transit of Venus, and through that reminding people that uh, science was fundamental to a lot of the Pacific exploration. In Australia, there's also a very important role that we recognised when we did our research about five years ago and asked Australians about the coming anniversary. Almost universally, there was a, yes, we must commemorate it, and then we dug a little bit deeper and said, well, what do you actually know about Cook? Uh, tell us more. And what was surprising was people felt they knew the story very well. But when we asked them questions, it was very clear there's a lot of confusion about who Cook was, when he arrived, what he did do and what he didn't do, and particularly a confusion with the First Fleet in 1788 and various characters being inter, 
woven. And so what we recognized is there was a pretty big job for us to, to demythologize as well as explain some of the important achievements. But most critically, um, we look back to 1970, the 200th anniversary, and we recognize modern Australia had come a long, long way in those 50 years. And, and the real missing part of the story was a voice from the shore. Traditionally, this is a story told from the ship. And in modern Australia, it's ever so important now that we go and find the stories from First Nation peoples who have a story to tell about seeing and interacting with Cook because their stories and their voices have traditionally not been heard when this master narrative has been told. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How did you then include First People's narratives into the planning for, the, for Mark and Cook's 250th? So we, we started very early on in, in a very detailed process of consultation and discussion. Um, there are many, many First Nation communities up Australia's east coast. If you look at Cook's voyage up the east coast of Australia, it's uh, some two and a half, three thousand kilometres. Uh, it would go through at least uh, 40 to 50 traditional waters of different uh, communities. And so a process was started talking to particularly, first of all, the communities that we know that there was engagement with Cook, Banks and the crew. And, and that fundamentally started at Port Hicks, where Cook makes the first observations uh, of the fact that the, that's the east coast of Australia, the great southern land. And we were surprised straight away by the fact that um, there's a very detailed account in both Banks and Cook's journals of seeing water spouts 
uh, as they see for the first time the uh, shore of Australia. And if you go and speak to the local community around Port Hicks, uh, the water spout is a very important symbolic pretense of what might be coming, a, a foreseer of possible conflict. Uh, and that is part and parcel of their storytelling is they do recall the same water spouts and they saw, even though there was no direct contact with the community, that there's a shared story backed up by Banks and Cook that in the oral histories of the communities around Port Hicks is also very, very prominent. And, and that's what we started to do. We started to go back and forth with communities and were always surprised to find out how these communities had handed down their stories, their accounts, and, and some of them quite contentious. Um, if you go and speak to the communities up around Possession Island, the far north parts of Australia, where Cook laid claim to the east coast of Australia, the communities there will tell you he never came ashore. Uh, they know the tides, they know the rock formations, there may have been a claim made, but there's no way it could have been done at this time of the year on this particular outcrop of, of the island. So there's fantastic kind of narrative there that we're, we're now trying to encourage some science around the tides and other things that is also a contentious narrative where it might, might say that something possibly different happened. And so it's opening up a dialogue. It's respecting that there are different stories that are emerging from these communities, but fundamentally for the first time, asking the question, engaging with that community and seeking their stories and their views, which simply hadn't happened before this anniversary. It's such an amazing a, a, a difference from what's happened in the past. Um, do you have detailed um, uh, notes on, on, on how previous anniversaries interpreted the, 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 the Cook landing? Um, most of the accounts are, are newspaper accounts. So the 1970s is, is mainly covered uh, through detailed newspaper accounts. There's the traditional kind of coin that you got sent if you were at school. Um, we have, um, I found through a friend, a fantastic cook discovery game that was produced in 1970. And, and in the way that game was put together and the language used, it was very much this uh, colonial story, discovering Australia. Um, and of course, Cook didn't discover Australia. Uh, Australia was an occupied continent, possibly 80,000 years before Cook arrived. Uh, we had First Nation peoples in Australia. So um, it was interesting going back through the newspaper archives and going back particularly through popular culture and having a look at some of the games to, to see what the currency and the language of the day was. And quite deliberately, we said, no, no, we're not going to be repeating that. Indeed, we'll be looking to demythologize a lot of that. Um, does Cook, I mean, this is obviously ongoing work, um, but do you think he... Cook still dominates this historical narrative of other peoples arriving in Australia. Is that, does he make it more difficult for you to actually tell the story of what happened? I, I, I think um, 
couple of ways of looking at that. I think Cook is such a powerful figure on the east coast of Australia. I, I have to be really careful here. Sydney and Cook is very much an east coast story. And if you go to the west of Australia, they, they will talk about the Dutch much, much more significantly to their part of the world than, than Cook is to the east coast of Australia. But nonetheless, if you look at school accounts across all curriculums in Australia, Cook is there as a major figure. Um, I think because he's such a significant figure, uh, it was a wonderful opportunity for us to, to pick him up, to talk more about him, and to most importantly, attempt to humanize him. I mean, he's an incredibly difficult character to humanize because he didn't write a lot. There's a lot of other people's writings about Cook, but he wasn't the most um, articulate writer about himself other than you know, the, the journals. Um, so that was fantastic. And because he's, so, he's such a common currency in discussion here, it was a great opportunity to begin to take that story and expand it and explore new avenues. And, and I, but we, we've, we can say that we've been quite successful this year. We, we did some analysis of the media uh, that has been out in Australia since what we call the Anniversary Encounters 2020. Um, that anniversary obviously coming to a close now. And more than 80% of the reporting of any Cook story in Australia, you could find within that a voice not only from the ship, but a voice from the shore. Uh, so five years worth of work, and this is not just ourselves, this is the National Library and the National Museum of Australia. I think we can say we've done a reasonable job in expanding the narrative and allowing First Nation voice to also speak in the story of Cook. If you simply look at mainstream media, where traditionally mainstream media would have simply been the story from the ship. And that's simply not the case in modern Australia now. Yeah. And it's an idea. It's a theme which I suppose you can apply to all sorts of things. It's not just Cook's story, which this works for, is it? No. And, and indeed, this was part of our motivation in wanting to take on board the Dutch East Indies company vessel Dijfkin, because Dijfkin is currently uh, the first vessel that we know of that charts and documents a part of Australia in 1606. But in doing so, uh, they come ashore and they spend considerable time with communities around the centre of uh, Weipa in Cape York. So again, for us, we're as interested in the stories of those communities as we are the archives and voices of Dutch merchants in the 17th century. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of a profound warning to historians of all stripes, isn't it? Don't be obsessed with what's written down on those pieces of paper. I mean, having said that, actually, what you were saying about Cook's personality is really interesting because the one thing we can get a sense of from Cook is his um, 
He was a scientist and a navigator through and through. He lived and breathed his job. That was his whole purpose. And yes, it's very difficult to get a, a sense of his personality, but you know, you can definitely identify him as one of these people who um, who actually absolutely lived for his job and, and fundamentally believed in it. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, you came up with a couple of, of items from your collection to discuss. Uh, uh, we're talking about these themes and. Um, the first, first of these, uh, uh, um, you are not mishearing me, uh, dear listeners. Um, it's called Captain James Crook by uh, the uh, artist Jason Wing from 2013. Uh, Kevin, tell me about this. It's brilliant. So th- th- this is, a, as you can imagine, a very controversial bronze bust. And at one level, it's a very traditional bronze bust of Cook, except Jason has subverted uh, the artwork by, by placing a balaclava over Cook, as though he is breaking into your home as a crook. Um, as an armed robber, yeah. As an armed robber. <clears throat> um, and look, we, we acquired this piece uh, about three years ago from Jason. It, it, it's a major award-winning contemporary artwork. We actually went a bit further, though. We asked Jason to create another bust for us, which actually is one of Cook in a very traditional sense without the balaclava. And at the museum, we display the two together very deliberately in a way to say to people, look, there's a multiplicity of ways of of potentially seeing this story and this man. We're not going to tell you which one we think is the right one, but we'd like you to appreciate that some people in our community may have a very different view of Cook's achievements, particularly symbolically for First Nation people. Cook marks the beginning of colonisation in Australia, which means he's got a symbolic value for First Nation Australians that may be very different from those of us who've come as migrants from Europe. Yeah, and the the, the violent simplicity in it, the the threat and the fear—it's it, so powerful because people understand the fear of someone charging into your house, holding you up, stealing everything. Um, uh, but it, it, that, that's why I think it works so well to actually to to get that sort of visceral fear, um, but applying it to history to say actually this is how many people consider this and or thought about it is very clever. It's it, it's very clever, but as Jason will say to you, the artist. Um, he, he also took a lot of stick. I mean, he, he got a lot of threats. Uh, you know, there were points where he, he was quite scared for himself and his family in putting this artwork out there. So it speaks again to the power of Cook as a figure in Australian history that this kind of um, reconceptualizing of Cook really struck a chord with a lot of people. And uh, and. and in that, for me, that's what museums are about. Museums are about trying to get people to understand that maybe things aren't as uh, clear or as easy as they might seem. If you dig a little bit deeper, um, you might find there are different stories and different views other than your own, uh, which is what museums, good museums are about. They're, they're, they're about thought-provoking discussions about history because as we know history is not a static thing it is something that is constantly moving with different voices being heard or sometimes not being heard 
that makes it so fascinating and such a great business to be in. Yeah, and you know the depth of the the animosity here. I mean, I read that he faced a, a, a potential civil lawsuit for defaming Cook, Captain Cook's good name. That's an extraordinary sentence, um, and it makes you realise the the almost unwillingness to consider that Cook might not have had a good name. Yeah, look, I, and I think it does again speak to the deep seated um, heroism uh, that 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 Cooks journey to Australia is, is seen to embody, uh, rightly, I would say. I, I'm myself a, I'm a great admirer of Cook as someone who is out there using technologies and pushing the envelope and doing things that simply weren't common by any means. Uh, and, and it was a very, very confrontational thing for Jason to do, highly provocative, uh, but nonetheless does work to get people to appreciate that history is not one-dimensional. There's multi-dimensions here and not everybody will share our perception or our view. And uh, Jason, is, is his works are provocative and they tend to promote a pretty rigorous debate and discussion. Yeah. Um, you, you were saying that, you know, how history changes and everything. And that's so true. And it actually makes the challenge of running a museum uh, almost more difficult because out of your hundred and however many thousand objects you said you have, just occasionally as the world changes, one will suddenly tell a story incredibly powerful in a way that it didn't last year. And you need to kind of keep on your toes, don't you? I, I think that's the beauty of being in a museum, though, is, is something you've acquired maybe 20 years ago for a certain reason might suddenly acquire a new value in a different context. Mm. Um, and, and being on your toes and being aware of those changing opportunities is something that a good curator does. That's really the, the discipline of a good curator is to be able to go back, trawl back through the collection and find something whose moment may be today. It may tell a story today that wasn't even the story we acquired some years ago. Uh, and that's the beauty of collections themselves because they're not static. Their context is always changing uh, and great curators are always able to see the collection in that way. Yeah, I love the way that objects acquire stories. Anyway, let's wrap up this discussion. I could actually spend all day talking to you. Uh, we've This other artefact here, we've got, um, it's a tea tray. It's an 18th century tea tray, this one. Tell me about this. So this is a, a tea tray that actually depicts uh, the death of Captain Cook in Hawaii and it's a, a work done in 1781 by George uh, Carter and he depicts the moment before Cook is killed and I think what this tea tray does is is it's it's a moment of um, a tragic moment but it speaks to the absolute um, what you would say uh, heroic status that Cook had acquired in his lifetime, particularly in Europe. Um, it for me is, however, an object I like because we displayed it earlier this year alongside the telescope of Bly. And of course, what people don't recognize is Bly was actually on the ship using this very same telescope. Um, actually observing Cook 
whilst he was on that very beach about to be killed. And when you bring these two objects together, we got a story not just about Cook, but we got a very human story about Bly's connection to Cook as well. And to think that this telescope, sitting aside this illustration, its optics up against the eye of Bly, most reobserved this real moment in real time. And that for me again is the power of these objects, bringing them together. It's about as close as you get to a time machine. Bringing this telescope and bringing this object together was so powerful, was a fantastic um, arrangement of two pieces. Yeah, I, I think it's genius. <laughs> well done, well done. Um, guys, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, as I say, we're doing a strand on historic vessels and I promise you we are going to come back to the um, uh, the Australian National Maritime Museum to talk more about their collection of historic vessels and hopefully uh, we'll even get you some um, video footage of them sailing. Kevin, thank you so much uh, for your time talking to me today. Thanks, Sam. A real pleasure. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening, as always. Now, how can you help? Well, you really can help. What you can do is you can go on to iTunes and you can leave a review of the podcast. Every big, good review does make a huge difference. Otherwise, please find the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk um, and please become a member. Um, your subscription fee will go towards preserving the maritime past and helping us to publish the most important maritime history. And also, please do get in touch with us on social media, either the Society for Nautical Research or the Mariner's Mirror podcast. You can join either one or you can find both and join both. That would be wonderful. And do please get in touch and let us know if you're enjoying it. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.